Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hello, and welcome to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. Hello. Hello. And we can't wait to tell you about the family tree of the killer we're going to be discussing today. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, how have you been? Well, I've been traveling and um, I was in Florida and it reminded Mm. me of why I don't like Florida. (laughs) Not because the people aren't nice. I mean, the people are super nice. It's Mm -hmm. not that. It's that it's so hot and muggy. Mm -hmm. I felt like all I did was sweat the entire time I was there. And I was like, okay, this is why I don't live here. This is why I don't live here. I was here there a whole week. Yeah, I lived there twice. Mm, um, God once love for a you. period of about two years, and then it was more like a year and a half, but at the next time for seven years. God bless you. And I, I was ya. very happy to leave and come back to the Midwest because I'm like you. I hate heat and I hate nine months of summer. Mm-hmm. You know, when I lived in Arizona, it didn't seem quite as bad because it's a dry heat. Yeah. But the thing about the dry heat is that you, if you sweat, it immediately evaporates. Yes. So you're not just sitting around in your own sweat all day. Yes. Unlike Florida, where you sit in your own sweat all day. And well, it was and, like. And that's why I discovered. I don't know if, if it's even so much the heat. It's just the humidity. I'm really miserable when I'm sweating. I mm-hmm. love the desert. I, I can sit on a chair outside at 105 degree temperature and be happy in the desert. It doesn't bother me, but get me at 90 degrees in Florida outside and I'm miserable and I'm just, I want to go inside where the air conditioning is. Yep. And I was just really grateful pretty much everywhere I was had air conditioning mm-hmm. and yet it still feels very wet there. Mm-hmm. It still feel no matter how hard the air conditioner's working and you know, but it honestly though, I mean, the trip itself went really well. I was a little anxious about flying. It was my mm. first time on a plane since before the pandemic. And I was a little nervous because of all of the rumors we've been hearing about how horrible people are on flights right now. Oh, yeah. But everyone was very well behaved. But yeah, it, it was everyone was well behaved. The flights made it. I got to where I needed to be. Um, so I, I think I conquered that first flight syndrome thing. Yay. So I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm ready to like start flying again. So... So that's oh, good nice. How you. about you? What's going on in your world? Um, not a whole lot, actually, to be honest. Um, so we had a kind of a semi sleepover last night. I have a friend, and she was going to a wedding with her husband, and it was out of town, just a couple hours. And she asked if I could watch her son, and I said sure. So to make it more fun, and so they didn't have to worry about trying to get back at a certain time, we made it into a fun like sleepover with my girls. And he's oh, six, nice. like my youngest. And they, they love him. I mean, they've hung out with him before. But, oh, my gosh, I forget how much louder little boys are than little <laughs> girls. Now, not that my girls are quiet. Don't, I don't want to give that impression because they aren't, especially my six-year-old. Because six-year-olds are still trying to develop that sense of um, sound and loudness. They think they need to yell everything <laughs> still. Yeah. Yeah. So I had two six-year-olds yelling a lot. <laughs> and me going... Bring it down. Oh my god, you poor thing. Oh my (laughs) god. Other than that, um, looks like I'm going to be working with this agency soon. 
to be doing some genealogy research professionally. That's so, so exciting. Oh, my yeah. gosh. They were supposed to send me an email after our conversation. They haven't. So now I'm like all a nervous wreck. Like, oh, did they change their mind after talking to me? But my guess is just stuff happens. Oh, yeah. And I'll get it. And they eventually. don't have a sense of urgency about it. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, great. We'll get this going. So, yeah. So I, I'm not overly worried. I'm just like excited at the prospect because mm-hmm. to send it. And to do the process, I found the company, I sent my information, they wanted to see a copy of a tree I've done, and I sent it to them, and then they wanted to talk to me about being one of their researchers, so. That's exciting. And she sounded excited. She's like, oh, we're so excited to have you. So that's why I'm like, I'm trying not to be nervous, even though, you know, that was days ago. (laughs) But, you know, whatever. I just Mm -hmm. keep busy. That's very cool. Oh, my gosh. I know it's going to be great. So yeah, that's I'm so exciting. excited. And I want to mention, you know, if I, I am available for hire to anybody who wants me to do your tree and see if you have any murderous roots in them. So, <laughs> and if you know, I'm you for hire roots, too, but it has nothing to do with genealogy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so who are we talking about today, Zelda? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I want to know. Okay. So we're, first of all, we're talking about Harry T. Hayward. Yes. And we have been discussing what does the T stand for? And we have not been able to quite nail that down yet. But yeah, we um, weren't able to find it. She found a reference to Thaddeus. But mm-hmm. I find that it's possible. But he had a brother named Thaddeus. So right. we're not sure. But he that does have weird. a grandmother with a, a T last name Tolman. So we're wondering if it could be that. So we have no idea, basically. I do have a question, though, Denise, to you mm-hmm. specifically. How did you choose Harry Hayward? Well, that's a great question. So I listened to several podcasts, and one of which is My Favorite Murder. <gasps> I love that one, too. Stay sexy and don't get murdered, people. Uh-huh. <laughs> SSDGM. Love them. And they actually had Harry T. Hayward on there, on uh, one of their episodes. And I was oh. so captured by it. I wrote his name down as a possible. Okay. So when I was that looking for ones to cover... I'm like, let's take this one on. That's very cool. Because he is a little a little different than the usual suspects. Yeah. So it was really fun to like look him up and learn a little more about him. Because even though I had lived in Minnesota and mm-hmm. had been to Minneapolis a bajillion times, I had no idea that he was connected to Minneapolis or that mm-hmm. any such person was connected to Minneapolis. It's almost like they erased him. <laughs> exactly. Although it's funny because apparently there's this tiny bit of an exhibition at the History Museum there on... Uh, Henry Harry Hayward. So, oh, I always thought that was kind of interesting. But did you know? And I'm sure you did because you've done all of this research <laughs> on him. He had the nickname the Spengali of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't quite trip off the tongue, but I suspect that most people nowadays don't actually know who Spengali was. So, just for a bit of background for our dear listeners, uh, Spengali was a character in a book that was really popular at the time of Hayward's crime. The novel was named Trilby, and the title character was a young Irish artist model in Paris who, with the help of Svengali, became a famous singer. Now, how did Svengali help her? He helped her by hypnotizing her. Mm. And she was helpless under his spell, and he could do whatever he liked with her, and he did, and make her do whatever he wanted, and he did. And most importantly, though, she could not sing without being under his spell. So when he died of a heart attack, she was laughed off stage and her life ended badly. And it was such an, a novel of so much significance that to this day, we refer to people 
as Svengali's when it seems like they have sort of a hypnotic evil effect over another person. Yeah. Just as a little aside, though, the novel was the best-selling novel of its time after Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, wow. So the only other book that beat it was Dracula, which I think tells you something about the period of time we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and this was the Gilded Age. So, you know, Mm. this is an important background point. You know, this takes place the American Gilded Age, where wealth was power, didn't matter if it was new money or old. And the wealth gap between the rich and the poor was almost as wide as it is today. It's actually wider now than it was back then. During the Gilded Age. Yeah, isn't that crazy when you think about it? It's like, Mm -hmm. huh, and think of what happened after the Gilded Age. Huh, yeah, change, change happened. But exploitation was the price of existence back then. Exploitation of workers, consumers, and really anyone weaker than oneself. So it isn't really surprising that this story captured the imagination of a country that's just primed for lurid news about control and seduction and murder for hire and all of that surrounding the fall of this handsome playboy from a wealthy family. Right. That was my that was my attempt at a, a posh accent. There's nothing about me that's posh, Denise. Not a bit. <laughs> so starting <laughs> You could be posh. I mean if you try. I could try. I could try. So anyway, um starting from the very beginning, Harry T. Hayward was born in Macoupin County, Illinois. Yeah. In 1865. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Southern Illinois, which is not Denise, because <laughs> you are very familiar with Southern Illinois, it's about halfway between Springfield, Illinois, and St. Louis. Now, if you don't know where Springfield is, brush up on your Abraham Lincoln history. <laughs> so, a son of William and Ladusky Hayward, Harry T. was brought to Minneapolis at the age of about one year. When he was about six years old, his family briefly returned to Illinois and stayed for about a year and then went back to Minneapolis. There was a little bit back and forth there. Right. So once he got back to Minneapolis, Hayward went to a private school conducted by Mrs. Lockwood on 6th Avenue North and stayed there perhaps six months. Mm. Afterwards, he attended. I just I can't help myself today. I'm like doing the weird accent. Just go for it. I'm going to just own it. And as I as I move yes. forward with this. So afterwards, he did go to the Minneapolis public schools until he graduated from high school. Now, as a child, he was known to other children to be a bully. He was cruel to younger children and cruel to animals. One story has him impaling a cat on a fence. Ooh, I mean, animal torture. That's a sign. It is. It is. And at the time, I'm sure they were just like, well, you know, he's a boy. They do crazy things. Yeah, boys Um, will be boys. Boys will be boys. Yeah, it's okay that they're torturing things. It's fine. Anyway, his brothers even described him as missing any kind of moral compass. His own brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the surface, he seemed to outgrow all of that. And by the time he was in his 20s, he was known as a charming, suave, and sociable playboy. He had a great many friendly acquaintances, and his companionship was actually highly sought. He came into the acquaintance of a Miss Kitty Jing. And I don't know if it's Jing or Ging, but it, like gingham, like, I think but it's, it's G-I-N-G. But gang. I can't tell either. Yeah. Every time I look at it, I'm thinking it's gang. And then I say Jing. So I don't know what's wrong with my tongue. That's okay. So Jing More or Ging, important- it's the same. <laughs> and if anybody knows the answer to this, you know, let us know. We'd mm-hmm. like to know. So she was a popular dressmaker, a businesswoman. She was about 29 years old when they met, described as grand in figure, large of heart. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure what that means. But I get the impression she was a substantial woman. I've seen a picture. You've seen a picture. Oh, good. She was quite generous to others. She was a devout Catholic. And she felt her acquaintance with Henry Hayward would likely benefit her brand, as the kids would say today. 
So Kitty and Hayward spend a lot of time together, and they have various business dealings between them, mostly for the benefit of Hayward. He borrowed quite a bit of money from Kitty to feed his gambling addiction, and when she demanded to be paid, he paid her in counterfeit money. Mm. Yet, she stuck with him. Others described their relationship as odd, that she seemed utterly smitten by him, no matter how badly he behaved. Almost, you might say, hypnotized. So, Jerry Walton is a person who has a blog that's a little bit of, like, miscellaneous history. Mm -hmm. And so, some of this story, uh, which I verified through some other things, um, but she just had it in such a concise way on her website that I'm referencing her website, jerrywalton.com, with a lot that comes later. So, I can add a link to it on the website. Oh, thank you. So, no one had any reason to suspect that Harry T. Hayward was involved when the dead body of a woman was discovered in a lonely spot near Lake Calhoun in Minneapolis, it's now known as Bidet Makasa, as it's always been known by the Dakota people who lived there before the white folks colonized the area. But now it's on the maps that way since 2017. The woman had been shot behind the ear. No one knew initially who the dead woman was, but soon after the body was identified as Kitty Gings, and because of Hayward's connection to her, he was called in by police for questioning. The St. Paul Globe reported he was examined closely and maintained stoutly that he knew nothing about the case, save that the woman was a friend of his, and that they had a number of business deals with each other, and that she borrowed money from him at various times, that the last deal amounted to a loan of $7,000. Huh. Interesting. Hayward's insistence that he knew Ging only as a friend initially seemed plausible. He was also able to provide detectives with a verifiable alibi that showed he had passed the evening at the Grand Opera House in the company of a Miss Bartleson on the night that Ging was murdered. Unfortunately, despite his pleas of innocence, Hayward's older brother, Adri, confessed that Hayward had indeed killed Ging. His confession came in the early morning hours of Saturday, December 8th, 1894. It was then he told a tale of brutal cunning, deep villainy, and unspeakable horror. Yes, that was a quote. It must be from one of the older articles. <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit. Weren't some of those articles that you sent me? I mean, the lurid and florid detail was just fabulous. <laughs> I thought you'd you don't get that. to see that much anymore. He admitted that Hayward had thoughtfully planned the murder of Ging in order to cash in on her life insurance policy, of which Hayward was the beneficiary, mm -hmm. and that Hayward had come to him hoping that he would help in her murder. Now, when, okay, so say your brother comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to get a lot of money if I kill this woman, but it can't be me because I'm a little too close. But if you could kill them for me, I'll give you some cash. And and I'd be like, are you high? I mean, seriously. Yeah. And if I thought, you know, it could even, if they were at all serious, I would go talk to someone about yes. that. Which he did. He went and talked to their family attorney and the family attorney kind of blew it off. So it wasn't until after the murder actually occurred that both the attorney and his brother were like, Holy crap, he actually did it. Right. So it was really crazy. Anyway, it seems that the murder stemmed from the fact that Hayward had developed a gambling addiction. Nothing could stop him from gambling incessantly and also included him losing a piece of real estate given to him by his father. And let's face it, Hayward lost more often than he won. In fact, Hayward soon spent everything he had and that's when he began to borrow from Ging. Little sums at first, but then rising to greater and greater amounts. He encouraged Ging to buy a life insurance policy, and of course his intention was always to murder her and collect on the policy. Adri also provided another reason for his brother to have murdered Ging. He claimed that she had become pregnant, 
and supposedly threatened Hayward that she would divulge the pregnancy if he didn't marry her. Mm. However, according to Adri, Hayward procured an abortion for her about three weeks before the murder, but then realizing she'd become a problem, he resolved to get rid of her permanently. Now, this was mentioned, but I haven't found that if that was actually true or if that was something that perhaps Hayward had told his brother, because we know now that, you know, Harry Hayward is not a man to be trusted. Right. And I don't think she was. I don't, I couldn't find that anywhere else other than his claims. Yeah. I'm just, that's what I'm kind of like, you know, there's, but again, that the newspapers themselves were making up facts at this well, yeah. point. So anything to sell the papers. So he talked to various people trying to find someone to kill Ging so he wouldn't be implicated and could provide an alibi. So besides talking to his brother, Adri, because that went nowhere. Uh, he also talked to Klaus A. Blixt, a janitor at the Ozark Flats. Now, the Ozark Flats was the building. It was It's an apartment building. It still exists mm-hmm. today. It's called the Bellevue in Minneapolis. And that's where uh, Kitty Jing lived. And also Hayward lived for a while. I'm not sure if he lived there at that exact moment, yeah. but his parents owned the building. Mm-hmm. So he was there a lot. And he knew, of course, the folks who worked there. So Blixt had been born in Sweden and lived in Minneapolis for about six years. He worked as a bartender, machinist, and railway conductor, and those who knew him were not impressed. <laughs> so, newspapers being newspapers at the time, of course, provided conjecture on how Ging's murder might possibly have played out. It was thought that after Hayward devised the murder plan and convinced Blix to murder Ging, Blix used a ruse to get her to accompany him somewhere. They left in his carriage, and along the way, Erickson stopped them to converse with Blix or Ging on some pro- pretext. When Ging's attention was elsewhere, Blix then shot Ging under the lobe of the ear and upwards through the brain. Now, there's a lot of conflicting information around this Mm -hmm. because it looks like there was how far away was the person when this happened. This was a carriage that apparently Ging had actually requested herself because she requested her favorite horse. Ah. And so there's just, I mean, there's just a few things that are a little, a little strange about all of this. Right. And they haven't been able to nail everything down other than we know that Blixt actually pulled the trigger. We know that Ging died. And then we find out later that Hayward had paid Blixt to do this. Right. So the trial for first degree murder against Harry T. Hayward got underway on January 21st, 1895 before judge Seagrave Smith. Penniman County attorney Frank M. Nye was the prosecutor. William Irwin, known as the tall pine tree of the Northwest. (laughs) I mean, I could not resist but put that in. Oh, yeah. And John Day, a Baptist deacon, Republican state senator, and one of Minnesota's foremost death penalty abolitionists, served as Hayward's defense attorneys. The trial lasted 46 days and involved 136 witnesses. Yeah. That sounds exhausting. It does. I would think the jury was exhausted. I can't even imagine. At that point, I'd be like committing a crime just to get off the jury after like the 25th day. Almost like the O.J. Simpson trial type of madness. Seriously. During the trial, Blixt and others suggested that Harry Hayward had somehow hypnotized or magically influenced them. Magically, magic was brought into this trial. Yes, of course it was. Yeah, that was because Hayward was touted as having great sway with others, and it was stated he could motivate people to do things that they might not ordinarily do. According to the St. Paul Globe, Adri said in his confession that he appeared to be under his brother's influence to such an extent that he believed he was hypnotized. It was the same way with the murdered girl. He exercised perfect control over the girl's actions, and she appeared to do everything he desired her to do. 
Yeah. So, in the prosecution's attempts to prove Harry T. Hayward guilty, Nye called in the agents and bankers knowledgeable about Ging's life insurance policy. The prosecutor also noted that Hayward was a gambler and had borrowed money from Ging, as we previously discussed. Mm -hmm. Blix's confession and testimony were also highly relied on by Nye. In fact, Blix was on the stand for three days, relating all the gory details of the crime and implicating Hayward in it. Adri Hayward was also called to testify by Nye. Of course, the defense wasn't super happy about that and alleged that Adri was, quote unquote, insane. <laughs> Which brings this to this question of, was Harry possibly insane? Yes. And there was quite a bit of discussion of, the hereditary nature of insanity during this court case, which I, I don't even know how many days that took up right. trying to show that, you know, insanity ran in the family. Um, so that was a little bit crazy, but they were unsuccessful in having his testimony ruled inadmissible. Judge Smith was just having none of it. He overruled the request stating, well, I don't see that he's any more insane at the present time than the attorney is. Yes. I'm like, sounds like he wasn't super thrilled with the attorney either. So the case went to the jury at 1130 a.m. on Friday, March 8th, 1895. At 2.15 p.m., the jury returned with a guilty verdict. Judge Smith did not immediately pass sentence. That happened three days later when he condemned Harry T. Hayward and ordered that he be hanged from the neck until dead. However, Hayward made an appeal to Governor David Marston Clough to spare his life, but Clough refused and instead signed his death warrant, fixing the date of execution for Wednesday, December 11th. So, you you know who Alan Pinkerton is, of yes. course, one of the, you know, great American detectives. He dubbed Hayward one of the greatest criminals the world has ever seen. But was he? Because he got caught on his, you know, <laughs> on this murder. Was he that great? Because we've had serial killers with, you know, victims in the tens at of, the time, you know, in the hundreds. Though, of, he is, he came right before H.H. H. Holmes got discovered. He came before. This is true. Or, um, oh, shoot. The, the demon of the Belfry. What's his name? <laughs> the one that we just did? Yeah. All of a sudden I'm blanking on his name. Why am I blanking on him too? Oh, well. You have, you have thus proved that perhaps he was, up to that point, one of the greatest criminals the world has ever seen. The others stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Um, so, anyway, that was about the same time Blick's trial was slated to begin. Originally, Blick's was going to be tried before Hayward, um, but the prosecutor switched up the dates mm -hmm. um, because they worried that if Blick's was found not guilty, there would be no way to convict Hayward, who was really the mastermind behind all of it. Right. After all of this, Blix decided to change his not guilty plea to guilty so that when he went before Judge Pond for sentencing, the judge sentenced him to life in prison rather than for hanging. So, right before his execution, Harry Hayward gave a series of detailed interviews to his cousin, Edward H. Goodsell, that were recorded by the court stenographer. In these interviews, Hayward showed narcissism, sadism, and a lack of empathy. He also claimed to have murderous impulses and felt something cover over him. Despite admitting to his involvement in Ging's murder, he also confessed to illegal gambling, arson, and three additional murders. Yes. Of these, the first killing involved a 20-year-old woman, Carrie Haas, whom he met in Pasadena, California, shot in the back of the head and buried in the woods. The second murder was a consumptive. I'm like, how would you like to be murdered and be described as a consumptive? Not much. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? What does a consumptive have to do? Yeah, exactly. The fact that you have tuberculosis have to do yeah, with your murder. Just um, an ill man. 
perhaps would have been better. But anyway, who he robbed near Long Branch, New Jersey and disposed of in the Shrewbury River. And finally, the last victim was an Asian man whom he met in a gambling joint on Mulberry Street, New York's Chinatown. And they got into an argument over a card game, so he killed him. At the end of his confession, this is the creepy part, okay? Mm -hmm. He quoted a poem, Happy the Man, written by John Dryden. Hayward said that the poem encompassed his philosophy on life. The poem in part stated, Happy the man and happy he alone, he who can call today his own. He who sincere within can say, tomorrow do thy worst, for I have lived today. Doesn't that make you just want to, like, go bitch slap him? Yeah, I mean, like, seriously. It's like, what the hell, dude? Harry Hayward went to the gallows, Natalie dressed in a cutaway coat and pinstripe trousers. His last words were, pull her tight, I'll stand pat. The trap was sprung at 2.12 a.m., but the fall did not break his neck. So he slowly strangled to death and pronounced dead at 2.25. You know, I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't support it. But for some reason, that just seems appropriate for him. I'm not hurting that he died. No. I'm really not. I mean, I'm against the death penalty. And life in prison would have been a perfectly appropriate sentence yes. to my mind. But okay, he's dead. It's handled. You know, yeah. Because, you know, people are nuts. After his funeral, a rumor persisted that Harry Hayward was not dead, that he was revived by a secret organization. Some said it was the Masons. Wasn't there the same rumor with the H.H. H. Holmes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just something about like that people time. Not being really dead, you know? Yeah. Like, so they even said, no, it was really a goat that they hung. Really? You can't tell the difference between a goat and a guy? <laughs> hmm. Interesting. But more, actually, even funnier. Okay, so... Um, in the 1980s. So um, the Metro Dome is this big dome in Minneapolis mm-hmm. where they hold events and stuff. Jim Klobuchar, father of Senator Amy Klobuchar, mm-hmm. wrote that disciples of the occult suggested ghosts were responsible for a chain of debacles happening at the Metro Dome. I'm oh. ready to nominate Harry Hayward's ghost, he speculated. Harry was hanged for murder nearly 80 years ago, a few feet from where the left field seats are today. We may still be paying for it. What? You know, I always felt like for Amy Klobuchar has an interesting backstory. Mm-hmm. And, and that just like gives it more um, uh, gravitas. That yes. yes, in fact, Amy Klobuchar has a backstory. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I won't say a villain origin story because I don't think she's a villain. But no, uh, there was a tour that highlighted Bellevue, which was, of course, the five floor apartment building also known as Ozark Flats mm-hmm. where Kitty Gang and Hayward had lived and where a city council member hired a clairvoyant to discover whether the spirits of Kitty Gang or Klaus Blixt had haunted the building. Yeah. A council member did that. So due to its connection to the murder, the building today remains one of Minneapolis's important sites for historic preservation. You can buy a condo there and it also has a really lovely coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the story of the infamous Harry Hayward. Oh, and that's just a little bit, too. Let's hear about his um, villain origin story. And I will, in just a second, I do have a corrections corner for our last episode before I begin oh. on Larry okay. Eiler. Oh. So during that, you mentioned that Eiler's life sentence was commuted, but you couldn't find when it happened. Well, that's because it didn't happen. Ah, although I can see where it would be confusing and think it did. 
Um, it turns out his death sentence was under appeal, thereby putting it on hold. And it was... Oh. So on October 30th, 1992, a Cook County judge denied one of a multitude of appeals to either overturn his conviction, death sentence, and or win a new trial. At the time of his death, this appeal had reached the Illinois Supreme Court. And the oh. issue at hand, and you had mentioned it in the episode, was the attorney David Shippers having a conflict of interest seeing as he was being paid under the table by Robert Little, the same mm-hmm. man that Eiler accused of committing the Daniel Bridges murder. Yep. And this was especially noteworthy because David Shippers had told the judge he was working pro bono. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's the corrections. So now on to Harry. <laughs> um, a few quick things about him. He was born in August 1865 in Medora, Illinois, which is in Macoupin County. Um, he was the third child to his parents, of four sons. His youngest brother was William Etta, three years his junior, who died between 1870 and 1875 as a child. Um, so Harry would have been between five and ten when his youngest brother died. His older brothers were Thaddeus and Adri. Theories abound that he might be Jack the Ripper. Now, while I was unable to find him on any ship manifest, he did get a passport in 1892. But that was after Jack the Ripper stopped his murder spree. So, but he said he was going to be gone up to two years and didn't say where or whatever. So, huh? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So he might have gone overseas at some point, And for all we know, there's some murder victim over there. Oh, my gosh. And could he have killed others as he confessed? Very likely. Yes. But I'm unable to track his travel. So. Before we get into his history, let's talk about Catherine Mary Ging, Kitty Ging, really quick. She was born in October 1864 in Throop, New York. She was the daughter of John and Bridget Ging, Irish immigrants, one of six children. Her mother would die sometime between 1875 and 1880. And get this, Kitty was a twin. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yes, her s- twin sister was Julia Ging, who was also a dressmaker. What, were they in business together? That I am not positive on. I think Julia came out around the time of the trial. I don't think she was here before. Then she okay. stayed in Minneapolis for a time. Oh, my gosh. After Kitty's death and while Harry was in prison, Hayward still wanted to collect the insurance money that he was bound to get when Kitty died. And this oh is from the, the St. Paul Globe on August 21st, 1895. And the headline is Kate Ging's Money. Harry Hayward still wants that 10000 of insurance. Wow. Harry Hayward intends to fight the suit brought by ex-Mayor Eustace for his client, Julia Ging. The general allegations of fraud, which were set forth in the complaint so liberally, will be denied, and an effort will be made to show that the transaction, by means of which Hayward secured the assignment of $10,000 in life insurance policies, was perfectly straight. And in the event Hayward should be executed before the case came to trial, his executors would continue the fight. (gasps) But you cannot inherit from somebody you murder. Yes, but was that the law then yet? I'm pretty sure that's common law. But you know what? I'm not licensed to practice in Minnesota. So who knows? Minnesota's quirky. Who knows? Now, there would be other issues involving the Ging family and Kitty's estate, but we don't have time for that today because, oh oh no, there is so much more. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm braced. Okay, so as you mentioned, the defense attorney presented evidence that Harry was insane and had witnesses and the whole bit. 
and that there was this family history. And during the thing, they said that his maternal uncle, John Hedges Keller, was reputed to be dangerously insane. Now, the 1860 census verifies this in part. He was listed as head of household. And on the last section, so when you're looking at a census, you have the name, the age, the date, and it, it, you look at the row. At the end of the row, in the last section, it asks the question, whether the person is deaf and dumb, blind, insane, idiotic, pauper, or convict, mm -hmm. or patient at an asylum. In that section, Keller was listed as insane, which I found interesting that he's the head of household and insane. Normally that you wow. wouldn't see one in th that at the same time. <laughs> well, guess how I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> he was reportedly a patient at insane asylums from July 1860 to April 1861, January 1863 to November 1863, December 1864 to September 1869. So it was getting longer and longer. And December 1869 to his death in 1882. Oh my goodness. Now, the defense also brought up the name of a cousin, George K. Van Meter. But I was unable to verify this information. Heck, I can't even find George K. Van Meter under that name in the census. <laughs> um, so I think it could be there wasn't enough information in the article for me to narrow it down because there's a lot of George okay. Van Meters. Now, grandmother Zilla Van Meter was supposedly insane on three separate occasions. First time early in her marriage at Crawford County, Indiana. And it makes me wonder if this could have been a postpartum issue. The second time was at age 48, around 1841, for two years when she was allegedly suicidal. And the third and last time was at age 73 when she allegedly tried to kill her daughter. Doesn't mention which daughter. And failing that, she killed herself by starvation. Oh, my God. And now the last family member listed was his maternal granduncle, half-brother of Zilla Van Meter, Moses Van Meter, who was allegedly violently insane as a young man and that he was only sane for a few days before his death. And there's little to no records on him. Wait, he was only insane a few days before his death? No, he was insane as a young man and only sane for a few days before his death. Oh, okay. Like all of a sudden that he, makes more he sense. had clarity of mind and then he died. Okay. So going back to the first one, his maternal uncle, John Hedges Keller, when he was committed, he was placed in the Jacksonville Insane Asylum in Jacksonville, Illinois. And this I was able to confirm. Eventually, it was renamed the Jacksonville Developmental Center. The hospital was created in 1847 by the Illinois legislature at the urging of mental health advocate and reformer Dorothea Dix. Oh, I like her. Yeah. She's cool. Now, the hospital, while well-meaning, had a few issues like many Satan asylums at the time, namely the motivation for a person being institutionalized. There was another patient at Jacksonville at the same time as John Hedges Keller, who would make the headlines. Elizabeth Packard. You know the name. I thought you would. Oh, my gosh. Yes. They were patients at the same time. Interesting. Elizabeth was born Elizabeth Ware in 1816, Massachusetts, and received a quality education. In 1839, Elizabeth's parents basically forced her to marry Theophilus Packard, a minister. Just the name Theophilus should have clued them in. Yeah, you would think. She was 23, he was 37. Ew. Yeah. They would have six children and left Massachusetts to settle in Illinois in the 1850s. Now, Theophilus was very religious, with definitive and conservative beliefs, especially regarding women. 
At this point, they had been married at least 20 years. When Elizabeth had had enough fucks, she was over this shit, (laughs) and started openly disagreeing with her husband. Well, you know, that's what happens when you get to your 40s as a female. Yeah. Like something in you just changes dramatically. It does. And back then, I would think, you know, if you're a certain strong-willed type of woman, that would have been hard to keep quiet (laughs) for too long. Theophilus Mm -hmm. did not like this one bit, especially when Elizabeth (laughs) defended abolitionist John Brown. So in 1860, he had Elizabeth committed to the Jacksonville Insane Asylum. You see, husbands could commit their wives without a hearing or her consent. Mm-hmm. Anybody else had to have a hearing, but if it was your wife, and, and part of that's that whole patriarchal standard that, well, that's my property. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth yep. was locked in the asylum for three years. She refused to alter her religious beliefs or even admit that she was insane. It was her children. How who, dare she? I How know. How dare she not just bow to that? Right? Wow. It was her children who got her out of the asylum by putting pressure on the doctors. And then the doctors declared her incurable. Oh, my God. Once released, Theophilus locked Elizabeth in the nursery of their home, nailing the windows shut. Resilient, Elizabeth found a way to sneak a letter out her window that her neighbor and friend received and brought to the judge. The judge forced Theophilus to release his wife under a writ of habeas corpus, ordering him to present her to him. And that's when the court case Packard v. Packard began. It was time for a jury to decide if Elizabeth was sane or not. The case lasted five days, and here are some of the arguments from Theophilus used to prove her insanity. First, she argued with him. (laughs) Two, she didn't adopt his opinions and beliefs. Wow. Yeah. Three, she tried to withdraw from his congregation. (gasps) Oh, no. I know. And fourth, the asylum discharged her as incurable. Damn it. Yeah. At the end of the trial, the jury came back in less than 10 minutes declaring that Elizabeth was sane. Yay! There were some, like, logical people there. Yes. (laughs) Thank goodness. Now, when... And and you got to keep in mind that the jury would have been all men. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's pretty great that they did that. So, now when Elizabeth returned to their home in Mantino, Illinois, she discovered that her husband had mastered pettiness to an extreme. The night before she arrived, Theophilus sold all her furniture and belongings, took the rest of her stuff, including her money and children, and left the state. Oh, my God. Yeah. Then he rented the home to another family. Oh, my God. So when Elizabeth arrived, everyone and everything was gone. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Wow. And since she was a woman and considered property to a man, she had no rights to anything. Yep, he had the perfect right to do all of that. But this did not beat down Elizabeth Packard. Oh, no. Her experience led her to help form the Anti-Insane Asylum Society, and she became a bit of a celebrity, fighting for reform in asylums and fighting for the rights of women. She even helped in the creation of two laws in Illinois. One law that made it, um, one law making it so that everyone was required to have a hearing before they were committed into an asylum, even wives. And that law was passed in 1867. Then in 1869, a law was passed saying that married women had equal rights to property and the custody of their children. Wow. Which is very progressive for 1869. Yeah, I was going to say that was very forward thinking. Yes. Now, after which 
for your information, Theophilus returned the children to Elizabeth to her home in Chicago at that point. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now let's go on to Harry's siblings. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Harry had two older brothers, the oldest being Thaddeus Thomas Hayward, born December 1859 in Chesterfield, Illinois, which is in Macoupin County. Thaddeus was an academic sort with some ambition, like many of the ancestors before him. In the 1880s, he went to Philadelphia to attend the University of Pennsylvania, where he graduated with a DDS degree, making him a dentist. Oh, yeah. It was a trade he seemed to take seriously and focus on because he didn't marry until 1908, at the age of 48. The woman he married was 25-year-old, yeah, I know, Elsie Melvin. The couple would have three daughters, the last one in 1916. Then five years later, at the age of 38, Elsie died. Thaddeus, at 61, was now a single father, his youngest being five and oldest 11. Then on February 4th, 1930, Thaddeus died, leaving his girls orphans. And his oldest was 20 now and the youngest 14. After his death, the two oldest girls went from a life of comfort and privilege to one without. They both got jobs in different households as maids. The youngest daughter, Helen, was just 14, boarded with the Dahl family. By 1940, Helen lived with oldest sister, Louise, a college graduate with a degree in home economics, and her husband. I have no idea what happened to William Edith. She was hard to trace. Mm-hmm. I did find that the oldest, Louise Hayward, married Frances Lanning in 1934. Frances had two degrees when they married, a BS, a, a bachelor's and a master's in chemistry. His major had been in physical chemistry, his minor in agricultural chemistry. Mm. And while still in Minneapolis, probably when they met, he was he got his PhD at the University of Minnesota, I believe, in chemistry. Yeah. Then the family would move to Manhattan, Kansas, where Dr. Lanning worked as a professor of chemistry at Kansas State University. Oh, and one more thing, a hint of things to come. In her obituary, it was noted that Louise was an active member of the Mayflower Society and Daughters of American Colonists. We'll get to that in a bit. Wow. One thing you did not mention was that Harry's brother, Adri, was initially accused, along with Harry, of the murder of Kitty Geen. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And so he was put into jail as well. And looking at his life, I can't help but think the accusation would have been a bit of a shock to everyone, particularly his in-laws. Anyhow, Adri was four years older than Harry and more settled, not the bon vivant socialite his brother was. In October 1887, 26-year-old Adri married 19-year-old Charlotte Chamberlain. Oh, I mean Charlotte Knickerbocker Chamberlain. We'll get to her in a bit. In the meantime, Adri and Charlotte had two children before the murder. When it came out that Adri revealed Harry's intentions to the police and later the courts, his parents cut him off financially and otherwise. Wow. Yeah. Adri had been working in real estate with his father, but no more. Adri needed to find his own way. I found this article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune on the 1st of May, 1896. And the whole article is around an event that happened with him. And we're not going to get into all those details. But the, the headline is Adri as a sleuth. Hayward loses a team of horses and recovers them. Shortly after the execution of Harry Hayward, Adri left the city to earn a living wherever the opportunity offered. His parents could never forgive. Neither could they forget and had practically cast him off, giving him to understand that he need expect no financial assistance from them in the future. 
Adri secured a team of horses with the intention of supporting himself and family by whatever odd jobs in the way of hauling and teamwork that he could come across. He has been pretty hard up financially of late. So then it gets into a story about how Adri was able to capture and, you know, use investigative skills to capture these horse thieves. Adri was very pleasantly surprised when informed that the state offered a bounty for horse thieves and that if he pressed his claim, he would probably receive no less than $200. Wow. Which is quite a bit of money in 1896. Mm -hmm. Adri is dressed in a regular Teamster outfit. So entirely different does he look from the trim, well-dressed businessman of other days. He is the picture of health and strength and seems content with the great change which a year has wrought in his surroundings. So, yeah. So as the article mentioned, times were financially tough. And while this windfall helped, it wasn't enough. In 1902, Adri would declare bankruptcy. Mm. However, I believe the family was able to survive financially tough times with the help of Charlotte's family. And I even saw a mention in an article that Charlotte's father, William, told the press that they lived with him since all that had happened with Harry. Now, Adri passed away at age 58 in 1920. Charlotte would live another 44 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. After Adri's death, she worked as a dressmaker for women's clothing and lived at the Hampshire Arms Hotel, a residential hotel built in 1892. And she died at the age of 96 in a Minneapolis nursing home. Now, as her name implied, and as I said, we're going to get back to this, Charlotte came from money, old money. She was the daughter of William Chamberlain, who owned and operated a successful jewelry store, and his wife, Charlotte Buell Knickerbocker. As soon as I saw the Knickerbocker name, my attention was got. (laughs) I would imagine. Just You should have seen um, Zelda's face. She's like, ooh. I know that name. (laughs) Charlotte was the niece of Bishop David Knickerbocker and the granddaughter of Herman Jansen Knickerbocker, a lawyer, congressman, and good friend of Washington Irving, the famous author of Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But he's also the author who made the Knickerbocker name famous. So how do you make the name famous? Well, he wrote a book under the pseudonym Dietrich Knickerbocker called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty. And he wrote this in 1809. It was a political and historical satire, and it was supposed to be like an autobiography by Dietrich Knickerbocker. So that's why he he used that as the author's name. And so the character was Knickerbocker, a name he borrowed from his friend. Oh, that's fun. Who came from Dutch ancestry. Charlotte's uncle, Bishop Knickerbocker, was an Episcopal bishop whose Charlotte family followed from New York to Minnesota in 1856. The bishop built three churches in Minneapolis after he arrived. He also founded the first hospital in all of Minnesota in 1870, originally known as Cottage Hospital. It was later renamed St. Barnabas and moved. It closed in 1991 after being sold to Hennepin County Medical Center. Then, in 1883, David Knickerbocker became the fourth bishop of Indiana. The Knickerbocker family was a very old, prominent family from New York State, with Charlotte's second great-grandfather, Harmon Jansen Knickerbocker, an original seller of New Amsterdam, what it is New York now, coming from the Netherlands. Harmon was born around 1648 and likely came to New Amsterdam in the early 1670s. The Knickerbocker name would become an NBA team, So that's New York Knicks is actually a shorthand for New York Knickerbockers. After Washington Irving's book, the Knickerbocker name became associated with the descendants of the original Dutch settlers. 
but it also became associated with the old money of the Dutch families. In 1871, a gentleman's club was founded in New York City called the Knickerbocker Club, a social club for wealthy New York men, mainly the descendants of British and Dutch aristocratic families. There's also a Knickerbocker Saloon in West Lafayette, Indiana. I'm sorry, in Lafayette, Indiana. Oh. And they have around the world in 40 beers. And if you finish 40 of their select, you know, imports Mm -hmm. in 40 days, you get a t-shirt. Oh, fun. And if you do 20 of that, you get a glass mug. And if you do them both, then you get both. So I have both. Just saying. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, the Knickerbocker Club would expand their membership slightly to allow the likes of the Rockefellers to join. (laughs) That's funny. I, I thought that was hysterical. Today, the club still exists as one of New York City's most exclusive clubs. No women are allowed to this day. Bastards. No website for it. And a code of secrecy. If you want to be part of the Knickerbocker, you don't talk about the Knickerbocker. Oh, that's so funny. Mm -hmm. Um, The Knickerbocker Saloon in Lafayette, Indiana is not at all selective. And anybody who can pay the beer price can come on in. (laughs) Just There's a little advertisement. (laughs) I love the Knickerbocker. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Now, this was from an article a couple of years ago. It said they had an annual fee of $1,800 to be a member. Oh, that's really low. That seemed low to me, too. So I'm thinking they might have the number wrong, especially since nobody talks about the Knickerbocker. I mean, you can't. You, you can yeah. look for articles, and there's very little they can say. Interesting. But at the location, I believe they now have a Knickerbocker hotel that just opened a few mm-hmm. years ago. And anybody can Curious. get there if you're willing to pay big bucks. Former members of the Knickerbocker Club include several Rockefellers, Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. And by the way, Zelda, it's a club that would never allow a Trump to join because it is old, old money. You know, I'm strangely okay with that. Same. I'm not into (laughs) exclusive clubs that don't allow women, but with that, I'm like, okay. You know, it evens out. It evens out, right? So now I am neutral toward them. (laughs) <laughs> I had an active dislike, but they won't let Trump in. So now I'm neutral. Yep. Excellent. Now we're going to move up the the paternal lines. Harry's father was William Wirt Hayward. He made his way west with his family to Illinois as a very young boy. His family had long ago settled in Massachusetts with a deep history going back to the 17th century. In fact, the first Hayward to settle on this side of the pond was Thomas Hayward. Oh, So Hmm. Thomas Hayward, his fourth great-grandfather, born around 1599 in Aylesford, Kent, England. There he married Susanna. In 1635, on the Hercules, they would travel to New England with their five children. Once in New England, they would have four more children, bringing the total to nine. Initially, the family would settle in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but they would later remove first to Duxbury and finally settle at Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Thomas died sometime between the writing of his will in 1678 and the dispersal of his estate in March 1681. He left to Joseph, Harry's third great-grandfather, my house lot, and this is a quote, my house lot with the dwelling house, barn, and all other outhouses, whatever standing upon the same lot which contains six acres, and 20 acres of land more joining to the house lot. Now in the book, The Great Migration Begins, Immigrants to New England, Volume 3, I found that Joseph's brother, Elisha, bequeathed to him land at his death in 1710, two 10-acre lots in Bridgewater. Now, Joseph and his second or third wife, 
Hannah Mitchell, daughter of Experience Mitchell, had eight children, one of which was Harry. Yes. Experience? Experience. Yeah, that's her first name. Interesting. Okay. Oh, we have some lots of interesting names we're coming to. Just wait. I'm Um, graced. (laughs) One of which was Harry's great-great-grandfather and the first Esquire in Easton, Massachusetts, Edward. So as you can see, the roots to Massachusetts were deep for the Haywards. Now, Edward would have several children of his own, including Joseph, who married Lydia Barrows and had 13 children. The first in 1781, the last in 1807. That, oh, dear God, that poor woman. Yes. One of those children was Ansel Hayward, grandfather of Harry. Ansel was number five of the 13 born in May 1789. In 1812, both around the age of 23, Ansel married Lucinda Tolman, a Bridgewater, Massachusetts native herself. Hmm. After 26 years of marriage, around 1838, I guess Ansel and Lucinda decided to shake things up as they loaded their family into wagons and headed west. At the time of this trek, William, their youngest child, born in 1834, was around four years old, and William being Harry's father. Their oldest child, Harriet, was 23 and married. She stayed behind in Massachusetts, but all of their other children joined them. In fact, I believe their son Cyrus, one of the oldest boys, started his way west before they did, but I can't be certain. The family would make a brief stop in Ohio before ultimately settling in Macoupin County, Illinois. William would marry local-born and raised girl Lodusky Levinsky Loper, only four years his junior in February 1859. What did I tell you about names? <laughs> Love these names. You know, and I saw that, her, her name, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if they're Polish. We'll find out. Curiouser and curiouser. And I noticed in the 1860 census that William was already doing well financially. While they lived with his parents, it's likely he owned the land and the home of the house that they were living in. William's real estate was valued at $3,000 and his personal estate at $1,033. But his father had no estate listed. No values. Now, Lodusky, much like William, came from a financially secure farming family. William's father, Ansel, died in 1862 at the age of 73. A few years later, around 1866, William and family, including his mother, Lucinda, moved north to Minneapolis, Minnesota. When they first moved to the area, William worked as a farmer. I found him in the 1870 census with a personal estate valued at $2,000. And it looked like he was renting the land at the time. By 1880, William presumably gave up farming now worked as, and, and was now working as a real estate broker. I mean, when you look at the Minneapolis Star Tribune from that time, you can find ads he placed selling various real estate and renting out various apartments and homes. The family lived at 1229 Hennepin Avenue, an address that they would live in for close to two decades, and it still exists today as the Bellevue that Zelda mentioned. And it sits downtown Minneapolis at Hennepin and South 13th Street. Now, 1229 Hennepin Avenue did not have the building it does today in 1880. William Hayward had the building built under his direction, construction being completed in 1892 or 1893. And I I can't remember if you said what floor Kitty lived on, but she lived on the fifth floor of the building. William Lodusky and maybe Harry, because I could never figure out where he was exactly, (laughs) Mm -hmm. lived in the first floor apartment. And I found a a quick little snippet in the paper. Among the big buildings that have been announced during the past week are a five-story brick and stone apartment house costing $50,000 at 
at 1225, 1227, and 1229 Hennepin Avenue by W.W. Hayward. And the article was in 1892. William and Ledesky left Minneapolis not long after the trial and execution of their youngest living son, Harry, and they moved to Excelsior, Minnesota. Now, Excelsior today is a suburb of Minneapolis on the south shore of Lake Minnetonka. Oh, and a funny note, in the 1900 census, William's occupation was listed as capitalist. <laughs> That's funny. I just, I, I'm like, what is that? Is that like a carpenter? And I looked closer, I'm like, capitalist? <laughs> Apparently, that's the name they had for investors back yes. then. On uh, September 11th, 1903, Ledusky died at the age of 65. I found the following article published in the Minneapolis Star Tribune on October 2nd, 1903, so less than a month later. Afraid he will spend his money. A reminder of sensational times in Hennepin County was the filing with the probate court by Adrie Hayward of a petition asking for the appointment of a guardian for William W. Hayward, father of Adrie and Harry Hayward, who for many years has been in a pitiable physical condition from nervous disorders. The petition set forth the fact that Mr. Hayward is old and infirm and incapable mentally of taking care of his business and property. He has at the present time real estate from which he derives an annual income of $4,000. And the petition stated that there is fear that it might become dissipated if not properly taken care of. However, after filing the petition and having it on the calendar, Adri Hayward filed a paper asking to withdraw the former petition. And you'll find out why I believe he withdrew the petition in a little bit. And remember, he was basically cut off by his family. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked us. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, those stories where the past and the paranormal meet. Because who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? I'm your host, Kat, and joining me every week will be one of my co-hosts. Either Haley, my partner in every idea I have, or Tress, my lovely sidekick in all things paranormal. Join us this season as we discuss and share true accounts from all over Southern California and beyond. From haunted locations to newsworthy incidents and crimes that stunned us. We will dwell deep and find the people behind the headlines. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Also, visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com. Until next time, remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. So by 1910, William lived alone with a private nurse caring for him. He died in February 1915 at 80 years. Okay, and this is from the Minneapolis Star Tribune on February 19, 1915. William W. Hayward leaves a state of $50,600. Son Adri receives a 20th, homestead only realty holding. So William W. Hayward, who died at his home, left an estate valued at $50,600 according to the will filed in probate court yesterday. Years ago, Mr. Hayward was reputed to be one of the wealthiest landowners in Minneapolis. At the time of his death, however, his homestead was his only real estate. Two-fifths of the state is bequeathed by the will to the elder son, Thaddeus, with whom Mr. Hayward lived the last 20 years of his life. I find that last statement interesting because I never saw him living with his son. Hmm. Not on the census, at least. To the second son, Adri, Mr. Hayward left one-twentieth of the estate. 
The will was made in 1903. In mentioning the bequest of the younger son, Mr. Hayward provided that in case Adrie should bring any action against him during his lifetime or should attempt to break the provisions of the will after his death, all bequests to Adrie should be revoked. Wow. So that change was made in 1903, about the same time Adrie was filing a petition for a guardian. So Mm -hmm. that's my guess as to why Adrie backed off the petition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to each of the two children of Adri, they were left three twentieths of the estate. The remainder of the property is left to a sister-in-law and to a niece, Mrs. Nellie Moody. And the, the will also provides that a monument be erected in his memory at a cost of not to exceed $1,000. Wow. Yeah. So like a, a headstone sort of thing? That's what I'm guessing, but that's a expensive they're looking that much. <laughs> and, and don't feel too sorry for Adri. One-fifth of the estate is worth about $68,000 today. So, That's not terrible. Now, being curious as I am, I googled his address that he was living in at the death that's listed in the obituary. And the house was built in 1900. It's, it's about one block from Bidet, Makasa. And it has a current estimated value of around $800,000. And we wow. divide that into a fifth. Adri got more money than he would have gotten now. <laughs> so nice. Or one twentieth or whatever. As I mentioned earlier, Louise Hayward Fanning was a member of the Mayflower Society. It's easy to dismiss that this connection came from her, her maternal side, and it very may well have, but I know for certain it came from her Hayward side as well. Harry's grandmother, Lucinda Tolman, wife of Ansel, was a Mayflower descendant from three different family lines. Oh my gosh. The Howlands, the Tillies, and the Browns. Hmm. Lucinda's father was Captain Daniel Tolman, born in Bridgewater, Massachusetts in January 1759. In August 1776, Daniel was sworn in as a private in Captain Amasa Soper's company of the 10th Massachusetts Militia for a period of four months, and this is during the Revolutionary War. He would re-enlist at least four more times, alas, as a sergeant. It was likely this last time that he would get a promotion to captain. This regiment that he served in at the end served from September to November 1781 and was raised to reinforce General George Washington's army at the Siege of Yorktown. At his first enlistment, Daniel was 17. At his last, he was just 22. A year after the war came to an end, Daniel married Chloe Bosworth, he 25, she 19. He died in 1829 at the age of 70. I even have his will and will have it on the website for those to look at if you wish. Both Daniel and Chloe were direct descendants of Mayflower passengers. First up is Peter Brown. Peter was a single man of 25 when he boarded the Mayflower in the company of the William Mullins family, a family that would die soon after their arrival. Peter would marry widow Mrs. Martha Ford around 1624. They'd had two daughters before her death in 1630. He then remarried to Mary. And no one knows what her last name was or anything else about her, which I find fascinating. It was their daughter, Rebecca Brown, and her husband, William Snow, from which Harry T. Hayward descends. Peter Brown and his wife, Mary, were Harry's sixth great-grandparents. Now, next, we're going to talk about the Tilly family. Five members of the Tilly family were aboard the Mayflower. John Tilly his wife, Joan Hurst, and their youngest child, daughter, Elizabeth, the only one of their children on the voyage with them. 
as well as John's younger brother Edward and his wife Agnes Ann Cooper. John and Joan were Harry's seventh great-grandparents. Soon after the Mayflower reached its destination, John and Edward took part in exploring the Cape Cod area of Massachusetts. Usually others would join these expeditions, like John Howland. That first winter for the Mayflower passengers was a difficult one. They were not used to the cold and harsh conditions in Massachusetts. I mean, they came from England, (laughs) where it gets cold, but not that cold. They had hoped to plant crops, but the ground was too hard. They thought once they arrived, they would disembark and remain on land, but lack of shelter and the cold prevented that as well. Instead, the passengers would remain on board the Mayflower that resulted in an outbreak of disease and scurvy. Mm. Of the 102 passengers, 45 would die that winter, including four of the five Tillies. Mm. The only one to survive was young Elizabeth, just 14 and now an orphan. After their deaths, Elizabeth was taken in by Governor John Carver and his wife. Now, John Howland, who I just mentioned previously, was the son of Quakers, Henry and Anne Margaret Howland of Finstanton, England. But John, born in 1591, felt differently about religion and became a Puritan separatist. Ah, what was a Puritan separatist, you might ask? Because <laughs> I didn't realize there was a difference, or I forgot. I, I should be. But it was a more radical Puritan in a way. They believed in a complete separation from the Church of England. Whereas your average Puritan just wanted to stay with the church and make have reforms made. It's likely that John Howland traveled as a religious refugee with other Puritans to Leiden, Netherlands, and was on the speedwell back to England. He was unmarried when he boarded the Mayflower in July 1620 at age 29. According to several sources, including his Wikipedia page, John was an indentured servant to John Carver, the author of the Mayflower Compact and the first governor of Plymouth Colony. It is said he traveled with the Carver family, acting more as a secretary or steward for the family than a servant. John helped Governor Carver create a treaty with Sachem Massasoit, leader of the Wampanoag people. Carver and his wife would die in late spring of 1621, releasing Howland from his indenture and making him a freeman. The Carver's children all died in Leiden before the Mayflower voyage, leaving them with no heirs. There's some evidence that John Howland inherited the Carver estate. With the Carver's dead, Elizabeth Tilly was yet again alone. So, you know, her parents die, it's a few months later, and now she's on her own. This development led to Elizabeth becoming a ward of John Howland. John Howland would marry Elizabeth Tilly three years later. Elizabeth was 17, John 33. Ew. I know, there's just something that seems so wrong about that. I mean, he was, she was like, his I mean, you child. can kind of see how it happened, you yeah. know, because, you know, she, he wasn't in charge of her when they first met. Right. And they probably spent a fair amount of time together being in the same household. Mm-hmm. So you kind of see how this happens. Um, but still, it's a little you. Yeah, because of the power dynamic, too, on that. It's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. John and Elizabeth had 10 children, including daughter Hannah Howland, wife of Jonathan Bosworth Sr the fifth great-grandparents to Harry. Wow. The Howland family history is well-documented, going quite far back. I stopped at Sir Richard Howland Sr., born in 1420 at Ashton-under-Lyne in Greater Manchester, England, Harry's 12th great-grandfather. But I found some lines going much further than that. Wow. Now, these were not the only family lines going far back in England. But for the sake of time, we'll specifically talk about one person, Captain Roger Clapp another fifth great-grandfather of Harry on Daniel Tolman's side of the family. Roger was the great-grandson of William and Alice Clapp, both born around 1500. 
and some of the information I'm about to share comes from Volume 1 of The Great Migration Begins. Captain Roger Clapp was born in Devon, England on April 2, 1609. He left for the Massachusetts Bay Colony at age 21, arriving on the ship the Mary and John on May 30, 1630. Roger was one of the first settlers of Dorchester, Massachusetts. Today, Dorchester is merely a neighborhood in Boston. But back then, it was a village all its own in 1630. It is likely Roger, a deeply religious Puritan, met his future wife, Joanna Ford, on board the Mary and John when she was just 13. In 1633, Roger and Joanna would marry him. The next year, Roger was given freeman status and he would be chosen as a selectman 15 times in the course of his life in Dorchester. Roger served for many years in the Dorchester militia, becoming a captain when he was tapped to oversee Castle Island, one of the original forts of the 13 colonies, a post he would hold for 21 years starting in 1665. In 1686, he retired at age 77. Roger and Joanna had 14 children some with very interesting names do you share and since they were all gendered back in the day i'm wondering if zelda can guess some of their genders okay i'm gonna try okay there were two with this name because one died and then they named the next one this experience i'm gonna say girl yes wait still boy girl ah preserved Ooh, is it preserved or persevered what's well, spelled preserved Okay, I'm, I'm going to go with that's a girl. It's a boy. Ah. Hope still. A girl. Boy. Ah. Wait. How do you spell it? W-A-I-T. They named a child Wait? Yeah, Wait Clap. They were actually, was that was she chanting that during now, her pregnancy? I don't pregnancy? even know this one. If it's a boy or a girl, I couldn't find any records beyond that. So that one. I'm judging them for that name. United. That's a terrible name. United? Uh-huh. Uh, United. I'm going to say that's a boy. It is. Supply. Yes. Boy. Yep. And thanks. Thanks? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's got to be a girl. I have no idea. Actually, on that ah. one. It could be either. <laughs> now, okay, but the name Wait, that's a terrible name for a child. Well, I think a lot of them are terrible. Harry's fourth great-grandfather was their son, Desire, who was born oh in 1652. Oh, my. Seriously. Seriously. Ugh. Okay. Okay. I hope my ancestors go hunt these ancestors down <laughs> and just explain to them how terrible but those you know, names are. Back then it was common to give people like um, personality traits that they hope for their children as their names. But it just seems like such a bad idea on some of these. Like supply. Supply. Or wait. Yeah, wait. Like patience. Patience I could see. And I think they hope, named. Charity. Faith. Yeah. They, I mean, they had a wait still which is W-A-I-T-S-T-I-L-L, a hope still, and a wait. I don't know. Yeah, I'm judging them. Okay. Oh, and a little treat. Before he died, Roger wrote his memoirs, and I will have a link to that on the website. Was it, I'm so glad I got a normal name in this family? No, he actually, <laughs> he actually talks a lot about his faith and stuff in it. And Oh, that's nice. So, and just so you know... There are still schools in Boston named after him to this day. And that would be Roger Clapp? Roger Clapp. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Now, on to the maternal line. Harry's mother, Lodusky Levinsky Loper, was born in Chesterfield Village in Illinois in August of 1838. She was one of 12 children, 10 girls, and two boys. 
Wow. And that's according to her father's obituary. I was able to find the name of 11 of the children. The, their names are so unique and fascinating, except for two. You thought the last names were great? Oh my gosh. <sighs> nope. I'm going to share these in the order of their births. Are you ready, Zelda? I embraced. These are their first and middle names. First up, Gideon Blackburn. Fine. Okay. Next, Darlusky Parlasky. That's unusual. Yeah. Third, Brother Cruz Vandis. Huh. Spelled C-R-U-C-E. Next, Addie Manford Utes. <laughs> Utes. Lucella Debula. That's a very fanciful sort of name for these people. Leodi Linney. <laughs> Lolili Dula. Wow. Eulalia Dubalba. Oh, I said huh. that wrong. Eulalia Dubalba. Wow. Ophelia Arcarelia. That's like the most normal name so far. Oh, the most normal is the last one. Adriana Chase. Ah, see, that's like practically normal. Sadly, four of the children listed would die in childhood. Oh. But their names. Oh, my gosh, their names. <laughs> I like the name Ophelia. Well, I like Ophelia. It was the Arcarelia that just kind of. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to discuss two of Lodusky's siblings, starting with Darlusky, her younger sister by five years. Five months after Lodusky married William Hayward, Darlusky married in July that year at the tender age of 15, a 29-year-old man by the name of Elhanan Winchester Sherman. Well, that's gross. Yeah. Son of Barnett Sherman and Lucille Fling. He went by Winchester usually, but for reasons I'm not clear on, they traveled to St. Charles, Missouri, about 40 miles away, to marry. Now, I think it might be, but I have no confirmation on this, so this is just my theory, that her family did not approve of this match. After all, Darlusky came from a very financially secure family. Elhanan's family, on the other hand, were not as secure, owning land valued at $500 and a personal estate of $83. And son Elhanan, at age 28, had no real estate or personal estate. And again, wow. William had an estate of $3,000, mm -hmm. plus 1000 in spending money, I guess, or personal estate. So whatever the reasons for marrying where they did, they would live with his parents, in July 1861, they had a daughter, Nell Winchester Sherman, or Nellie. Then tragedy struck when Winchester, as he was known, died on Locust Street in St. Louis in January 1862. Hmm. And he would be buried in St. Louis, but I have no idea why he was in St. Louis. Interesting. Karleski would continue to live with her in-laws. I believe this was likely due to her parents' house being filled with young children at the time. Then on February 18, 1864, Darlusky married her brother-in-law, one of Winchester's younger brothers, Enoch Moore Sherman. He was 21, she was 18. Well, that's a little more age appropriate. Yeah. And they would soon have a child of their own, Deli, born four months later in June 1864. Well, you know, they were in a hurry. And they were in a house together and temptation and they were closer in the age. But misfortune hit Darlusky and the Sherman family when Enoch died in early 1867. But wait, there's more. This is from the Chicago Tribune on February 1st, 1868, a year after they married. Near the close of the afternoon of Tuesday, January 21st, a painful and deplorable tragedy transpired. One Miss Darlusky Loper, said to be a young lady of rare and fascinating beauty, 
a daughter of A.W. Loper, a substantial farmer near Chesterfield, was wooed and won by Mr. Winthrop Sherman. They were married and, so far as we know, lived happily, but the husband soon died, leaving with her one child. Her undiminished beauty attracted the attention and won the heart of a younger brother. Her grief was assaged by marriage with Sherman Number 2. He, in due time, followed his brother beyond the portals of time. Love this flowery language. Did Was she making potato soup by chance? I, who knows? I doubt it. She, she probably wasn't doing most of the cooking. It was probably her mother-in-law. Well, I'm just wondering if, you know, it gets suspicious. The young widow, liking the Shermans, resided with the family of her husband's father. Her brothers, it seems, were very anxious and used every effort to induce her to return to their roof, and at last succeeded. They created for her a neat and pleasant home and were unsparing in their efforts to promote her comfort. Previous to Mrs. Sherman's leaving, her her in-laws, the susceptible heart of William Sherman, a younger brother of her two former husbands, was touched by her unfaded beauty. Now, this is from the article. I'm not sure how much I believe all this, but there we go. A mutual attachment sprung up between them. The brothers of the fair young widow were not pleased with the affair, and labored to break off the proposed match. Probably William was once ordered off from the premises where she was living by her brother, Mr. Gideon Loper. William, it seems, persuaded the lady to leave her brothers and return to his father's. It was supposed that William would soon become the third husband of his brother's widow. So, it's Tuesday evening, the 21st. William Sherman, with the fascinating Mrs. Darleski and her two children, went visiting some friends in the vicinity of Chesterfield. On their way home, just before night, they met Mr. Gideon Loper with a load of wood walking behind his wagon. Sherman turned out giving fully half the road, according to all accounts. Mr. Loper, whether intentionally or not, we do not know, failed to give as much of the road as the law requires, and his hind wheels locked with Sherman's. About this time, Loper seized a pole from his wagon, and Sherman drew a revolver. (gasps) Now, I'm sure, as I'm reading this, that Loper grabbed the pole to try to separate them, Mm -hmm. would be my guess. But So I can't figure out why Sherman would pull a revolver. Mm -hmm. However, the pole came in contact with Sherman's head. Hmm. And the pistol in his hand went off about the same time. Loper's horses started, and he, in attempting to stop them or get behind the wood, missed two more shots from Sherman's pistol. So now William's trying to kill Dartleski's brother. Wow. Just then, Sherman's horses started, and he stooped down to grasp the reins, which had previously fallen from his hands, the revolver still in his grasp. The horses, giving a sudden jerk in some way, threw the revolver into such a position that, in going off, the contents were thrown into the breast of Mrs. Darleski. Oh, no. The ball penetrating near the heart, severing an artery and producing almost instant death. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. The warm heart blood of the dying young mother spirited over her innocent, tender little children sitting at her feet. Oh, my God. Yeah. Her kids were right there to watch it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, thus passed away the sister of one and the intended wife of the other principal actor in this death tragedy. Young Sherman, no doubt terrified at the terrible result of his conduct, fled to his father's house and immediately went to bed. He appeared to be in a great excitement, and the only words that his family could get from him were, I've killed Dor. Oh my gosh. 
He was arrested and had a preliminary examination before Justice Lawson and Loomis of Chesterfield, who refused to admit him to bail. On Friday last, he was brought to the city and committed to the county jail for trial at the next term of the circuit court. So, I just feel like there's some details missing in there. Wow. I mean, he's insistent on shooting this gun. I, I always, I kind of wonder if it was an accident to shoot Darleski, mm-hmm. but... Ultimately, when William Sherman was found not guilty. Yes. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. He would leave Illinois and settle in Nebraska, where he married Martha Skaggs. They would have four children, but William would not have an easy life. Good. Yeah. By late 1870, he went blind. Oh, God. Then in February 1889, his wife died in a blizzard. Oh, no. And he died in 1912 of liver failure. Probably from drinking too much. Probably. Darleski's daughters would be taken in by the maternal grandparents and moved to Minneapolis. Nellie would end up living with her aunt, Ledusky and William Hayward. In 1880, she was listed as their adopted daughter. Nellie, now married to Frank Moody, would inherit part of William's estate at his death. $1,500. So, and so those were the two siblings, Gideon and Darleski. So before going back on the Loper line, we're going to go down and sideways to Harry's second cousin, Harry Townsend Loper. So it was a Harry T, but it was Loper, not Hayward. (laughs) To give you some quick background, Harry Loper's grandfather, George, was the brother of Harry Hayward's grandfather, Adrian Loper. Harry Loper was born in 1860 in Illinois. While Harry Hayward's family was in Macoupin County, Harry Loper grew up in nearby Green County. In 1883, Loper moved to Springfield, Illinois, where he worked at a restaurant and soon after opened his own lunch counter, a Hmm. popular lunch counter called Loper's. Hmm. It was downtown on 5th Street. Likely due to his own military experience, he was a major, he had been a major in the National Guard. Harry T. Loper had contracts with the military at various times to feed regiments when their train stopped in Springfield while en route to another location. Mm -hmm. But in 1908, an event happened that pushed Harry out of the restaurant business. From that point on, he opened theaters to show this new thing called moving pictures. He even opened one in Chicago for a time. So what happened in 1908? I have a story to tell you. Young white woman, Mabel Hallam, 21 years old, charged a black construction worker, George Richardson, of raping her on August 14th. When reading her charge, I'm left with a feeling that she wasn't even sure he did it, but she was willing to point a finger at him. Wow. And this is a quote from her. I believe you are the man and you will have to prove that you are not. Oh my God. It doesn't sound like a privilege there too. Yeah. I mean, just, she knows her privilege. Richardson denied the charges and claimed the only reason she pointed at him is that she thought all black men looked alike. Oh my God. In this city that Abraham Lincoln called home, a powder cake was waiting to be lit, and Mabel's charge would be the match. Crowds gathered at the courthouse, then the jail. Angry men and a few women wanted to enact punishment upon Richardson themselves. They were looking for a lynching. In the years prior to this event, racial tensions were rising across the country. And by that I mean white racists were getting more and more frustrated that black people had any rights at all. These tensions extended to Springfield, Illinois. Making things even more tense was the murder of white engineer Clergy Ballard, 
who believed that a black man had entered his home to rape his daughter. So she cries out, a man's been in there. He goes chasing um, the man out of the house and was attacked and stabbed. He died in his yard in the early morning hours of July 5th, 1908. A black man by the name of Joe James was eventually accused of this stabbing as well as a few others. He was found and beaten before dragged to the jail. By mid-August, James pled guilty to the charges to, to hopefully avoid the death penalty. This plea did not satisfy White Springfield residents who wanted him dead. The police even issued statements saying that if it were up to them, he'd already be hung on the gallows. Wow. Yeah. But the courts run slow and the earliest James would be on the docket for a trial was August 4th, 10 days prior to Mabel's charges. And I don't believe he had gotten very far in the court process by the time August 14th rolled around. Now, Mabel was known to the community. She was married to a streetcar conductor and was a popular young lady. And she lived in the same neighborhood as clergy Ballard, the man who had been murdered. She alleged that a black man broke into her home, threatened to kill her, dragged her into her backyard, raped her, then beat her unconscious. Once the police chief, Wilbur Morris, was notified, he put the whole police force on the case. The police, seeing a group of black men gathered together, grabbed the group and brought them to Mabel to see if she could identify her rapist. So they sent one in at a time, and she pointed out Richardson, a resident with deep ties from a prominent black family. I mean, his grandfather was Abraham Lincoln's barber. George Richardson claimed innocence and had an alibi. Despite several people supporting his alibi, Richardson was arrested. Wow. By the afternoon, this is still August 14th, the crowds had grown to 3,000 white men at the courthouse. Oh my gosh. They wanted to lynch Joe James and George Richardson. Oh my gosh. Then they headed to the jail. Now the crowd was at 5,000. The governor called the Sangamon County Sheriff asking if he needed the National Guard. Sheriff Charles Warner said, nope, like the idiot he probably was. Oh my God. Commander Shand of the National Guard convinced Sheriff Werner to take some assistance, but would not be nearly enough. You see, Werner thought he had it all under control, and the crowd would disperse on its own once they realized there was no point. You see, he had planned a fake fire alarm at 5 p.m., thinking that the crowd would be distracted by the fire trucks coming up, and while that was going on, he arranged for Harry T. Loper, Hayward's cousin, to transport Richardson and James to Bloomington, Illinois, where they would then be moved to a Peoria jail. So at five o'clock, the alarm went off and everything went as planned. At first, that is. Once the crowd realized what happened, they lost their ever-loving minds. Mm -hmm. They were angry at being tricked. At first, the crowd went off, but many of them going to saloons to get drunk. Mm. And we know what an angry crowd that's drunk is like. When Harry returned to his restaurant, he found a crowd of angry men and at least one angry woman holding bats, guns, and other potential weapons. A woman in the crowd, Kate Howard, a woman suspected of owning at least one brothel, urged the crowd to destroy lopers. Harry tried to defend his business, even shooting off a shotgun, but the crowd was too large to stop. They were angry at Loper for preventing the lynching of Richardson and James and likely because Loper also employed black men in his restaurant and served black customers. Oh my God. The crowd destroyed not only the restaurant, but also Harry's car, one of the few in Springfield at the time, by setting it on fire. 
Harry escaped out the back of Lopers, and what of the military? There were only 26 there. Oh my gosh. Nowhere near enough to battle the angry white crowd. And it got worse as they decided Lopers wasn't enough. They headed out to the black district, the levee, to cause more damage while chanting, curse the, and I'm, I'm editing the actual chant because I'm not going to say that word, but curse the day that Lincoln freed the blacks. Oh. This was the Springfield race riot of 1908. I'd call that a misnomer because to me, it's more of a Springfield racist riot. It lasted for three days. In that time, two black businessmen, Barbara Scott Burton, age 59, and shoemaker William Donegan, age 84, were lynched. At least 35 black-owned businesses destroyed and 50 homes in ruin, many burned. Wow. At least 16 people died, eight black victims. Two were self-inflicted deaths of white participants and witnesses. Mm. One black infant from exposure, mm-hmm. and five from the crowd, five white people from the crowd who were shot in, in self defense by their black targets. Wow. At least 100 white people who participated were injured, but there's no record on the number of injuries of black residents. Wow. As the events unfolded, it is estimated that over 2,000 black residents fled. But coming back for me was not possible. They didn't have their homes, they didn't have their jobs anymore. And those that did come back were met with hostility. This is only a little bit of what happened. Wow. In the end, after evidence came to light, Mabel recanted her accusation against Richardson, (gasps) then accused a different black man. A man, it seems, didn't exist. She was trying to claim it was this guy's son, and that guy didn't have a son. Oh, my God. In the end, it turned out that it was her husband who assaulted her after finding out she was having an affair. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Joe James was tried, found guilty, and hanged. The papers would later blame James for the race riot. Oh, my God. Yeah, there were 117 white people indicted, and and there's so much to this. Wow. So, let's go back now, and we're going to talk about Lodusky's father. Shoot, okay, so I did forget one thing earlier, and I'm going to bring it up now, and I don't care if it's in the middle of this. I don't care. So... Gideon Loper, um, the oldest sibling to uh, Lodusky, I noticed something kind of interesting in his obituary that I thought was pretty great. And I, I can't find where I put Did it. Did he have a special friend? Well, now it mentioned something about his dad that I found funny. And so I'm going to just, it was one line in his obituary and I thought it was worth noting. And it's from the Wichita Daily Eagle on September 17th. 1919. Mr. Loper's father and Abraham Lincoln resided in the same Illinois town and were lifelong friends. Oh, that's nice. Now, of course, I tried to find out how and when they would have connected with little success. I suspect it could be New Salem, Illinois, but I have no evidence that Gideon's father ever lived there. I even enlisted a librarian I know who works at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. She also was unable to find the connection. (laughs) But she's the one who found the tidbit about Harry T. Loper. So thank you very much, Michelle. Yay, Michelle. (laughs) We have no clear way of knowing either way. So now we're going to talk about Adrian Loper, Adrian Woodruff Loper, Lincoln's supposed lifelong friend. Adrian was the second child of seven to parents James Loper Jr. and Elizabeth Betsy Franklin. The Loper family originated in Sweden. 
with the first immigrant being Captain Lieutenant Jacob Loper, a Swedish ship's captain born in Stockholm. For a time, Captain Jacob worked as a whaler for the Dutch West Indies Company. Oh, wow. He would work for a time in the Curacao Islands in the West Indies before settling in New Amsterdam in 1647, where he would marry Cornelia Mellon, daughter of Cornelis Mellon, good friend of Captain Johan Peterson Koiter, a Danish seafarer with a great reputation and named as one of the most influential colonists in New Netherland. And it was in, and I found this in the 1916 book, Scandinavian Immigrants in New York, 1630 to 1674 by Dr. John O. Evian. So let's talk about Harry's eighth great grandfather. We're going to skip through stuff so we can just go there. Um, Cornelis Mellon, a Dutch leather dresser from Amsterdam who would have a large impact on the early Dutch colony of New Amsterdam. Cornelis made his first voyage to New Netherland in 1638. Then he came back in 1641 with a deed for almost all the land of Staten Island. Wow. Yeah. Cornelis quickly got to work building houses and got settlers to go there as well. His friend Johan built a large plantation on the island. Then in 1643, a white man was killed by an indigenous man. Director General of the Dutch West Indies, Willem Kieft demanded the man be surrendered for the murder for punishment. When he wasn't given up by the tribe, Kieft told the council they needed to massacre the Indian village. Oh no. Yeah, the council refused. The native people were more numerous than the colonists and they had trading interests with the natives. They just thought getting rid of all these people for the sake of this one thing was wrong Mm -hmm. as well. Eventually, Kieft would dissolve the council and send an expedition to attack the village. But the militia got lost. Oh, wow. Soon after, a peace offering was made by the Wekwazik elders. Wekwazik elders. And if I mispronounce that, I'm so sorry. Send me a correction. Um, Which he accepted. However, Kieft was eager to rid the area of all the native people and hope for an opportunity to exterminate them. Wow. Without the backing of the colonists and and after the dissolution of the council, Kieft ordered an attack against camps of two Indian tribes, including the Tampan Indians, themselves refugees from the violence of the Mahican and Mohawk tribes. So these are these were two tribes that came to the Dutch looking for protection. And he's going to have them massacred. On February 25th, 1643, Kieft's ordered attack resulted in the deaths of 160 Indians at two different locations. No concern was given to gender or age. Oh my gosh. From Wikipedia and a book written by Cornelis Mellon, Hayward's ancestor, here's a description of Keith's war. Um, What I'm about to describe is difficult to listen, so if you want to skip a little bit ahead, go for it. Infants were torn from their mother's breast and hacked to pieces in the presence of their parents, and pieces thrown into the fire and in the water and other sucklings being bound to small boards, were cut, stuck, and pierced, and miserably massacred in a manner to move a heart of stone. Some were thrown into the river, and when the fathers and mothers endeavored to save them, the soldiers would not let them come on land, but made both parents and children drown. Oh my God. This attack resulted in a two-year war with the Indians, and the Indians killed many colonists, but also in the death of thousands of Indian people. Mm -hmm. Because of Keefe's war, Staten Island had to be abandoned. 
Malin and Yochim's plantations were destroyed. Both would end up settling on lower Manhattan Island. Keefe's actions resulted in chaos amongst the colonists and the Dutch West Indies Company. In 1647, Peter Stuyvesant arrived to replace Kieft. Cornelis and Johem brought charges against outgoing Kieft, acting in the name of the Dutch colonist. They demanded that Kieft be investigated for his conduct in office. Not only did Stuyvesant refuse, he had Cornelis and Johem tried for actions against the sovereign or the state. Wow. And Cornelis and Johem were found guilty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Taking matters into their own hands, they got on a ship to return to the Netherlands to appeal the verdict. In 1648, their appeal was heard, conviction overturned, and a writ of mandibus issued to Stuyvesant. Okay. And what's um, a writ of mandibus? I have no here? idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> I should look that up. I should it, know it. From what I looked up, it, it's basically saying that he needed to present his own side of the case. Okay. He needed to, so Stuyvesant had to be there or a representative. So Cornelis and Johem returned to New Amsterdam and presented the writ in a very public manner. And this is, <laughs> this is a quote um, from, I think, uh, the Wikipedia. Mellon appeared at this meeting and demanded that their high mightiness letter and the mandibus be read and explained to the people. In the midst of the considerable excitement, Mellon handed the mandibus to Arnoldus van Hardenberg, to be read aloud. Stuyvesant, in a rage, snatched the mandibus from Van Hardenberg's hands, and in the confusion, the seal was torn off. Mellon then offered Stuyvesant a copy of the mandibus, whereupon the latter was induced by some of the bystanders to return the original, which was read, including the course of the summons commanding Stuyvesant to enter appearance without delay at The Hague to defend the judgment. Soyvesant replied, I honor the states general and their commission and will obey their commands and will send an agent to maintain the judgment as it was well and legally pronounced. So while this battle between Peter Soyvesant, the director general of the Dutch West Indies Company, and Cornelis Mellon was going on, Jacob Loper married Cornelia Mellon, Cornelis's oldest daughter, on June 30th, 1647. Jacob's employer was the Dutch West Indies Company and they were not pleased by this match. In fact, they would deny him jobs that he requested, making it clear that he was denied due to his marriage to Cornelis's daughter, mm. because he's going up against the Dutch West Indy Company, Cornelis's, and Jacob's marrying wow. the enemy in their mind. Oh, okay. In the meantime, Cornelis returned to the Netherlands with Stuyvesant's representative, he returned to New Amsterdam in 1650 with plans to try and settle Staten Island again, but soon became apparent that he had made an enemy in Stuyvesant. While Coyster was able to heal the rift a little bit, Mellon did not and faced Stuyvesant's wrath. In 1655, without known cause, hearing, or trial, Stuyvesant had Mellon arrested and imprisoned. Oh my God. While he sat in jail, yeah, another Indian uprising occurred, the Peach Tree War, destroying the Staten Island colony once again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Once released, Malin left with his family to the New Haven colony, what is now in present day Connecticut, and swore an oath of allegiance to the English crown. As for Jacob Loper, from the book Loper, Keller, Van Meter, and Allied Lines by Melba Wood, Jacob died in 1652 when his son, James Jacob Loper, Harry's sixth great-grandfather, was only four years old. 
his wife, Cornelia, would remarry to Jacob Schellingen of Amsterdam. For a time, the Lopers would remain in New York, but eventually they'd make their way to New Jersey by the mid-18th century, where Harry's grandfather, Adrian Woodruff, would be born in 1815. Now, Adrian's father, James, was a seafaring man like his ancestors, but after serving in the War of 1812 and the loss of his two shipping vessels during that war, James packed up the family and took a one-horse wagon west, first stopping in Cincinnati, along with his father, James Loper III, and mother, Ruth Waithman, by 1817. Then in 1819, they would remove themselves to Fairfield, Indiana. Wow. The Loper family stayed in Fairfield until 1827 when James decided to head west, eventually settling in Macoupin County by 1829, with a brief stopover in Coles County. Once the family arrived in Illinois, Adrian left home at age 12, according to his obituary. And it said, in the fall of 1827, young Loper began his experience as a frontiersman at an early age, experienced the hardships and privation incident to such a life. The greatest privation and the one of the most deplored was the lack of schools. By dint of hard study, during his few leisure hours, Loper was able to secure a fair business education. Wow. Now, it's likely during this period that he met and became friends with Lincoln okay. um, because every else place he lived once he got married mm-hmm. <laughs> was not in the same location. Um, and so that's why I suspect it might be New Salem. Okay. By 1836, Adrian returned to the area his family had settled in Macoupin County and married Susan Jeffers Keller, age 18, in December in December that year. The couple, are you ready for this? The couple had 17 children. Oh my gosh. Including redheaded twins. Oh fun. They're the yeah. best kind. Um, but sadly, six died before they were named and four in infancy. Mm. So only seven of the 17 lived to oh adulthood. That's so sad. Yeah. Adrian and Susan would follow daughter Ledusky to Minnesota, but only for a short time. They returned to Macoupin before 1875 when they had a, when they had a house fire. Um, they would then briefly settle in Wichita where their children, Gideon, Leody, and Adriana lived. But they again returned to their home in Macoupin. I guess they weren't happy anywhere but Macoupin. <laughs> In fact, they were listed twice in the 1880 census, one in Wichita and one in Macoupin. Oh, funny. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, it, it happens, but not that often. Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian died in January 1890, his death resulting in a fight over the will, despite Susan still being alive. Mm-hmm. And that fight over the will would make its way to the Illinois Supreme Court and Hayward v. Loper with a final judgment in October 1893. Basically, the judgment was, I mean, it's really complicated stuff, but the will would stand. And the argument was that Ledusky shouldn't get $3,000 because her father gave it to her before, but he gave mm-hmm. it to her as a loan and she had paid it back. Okay. And so she got to keep get the $3,000. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So Susan Keller Loper, and this is Harry's grandmother, was the daughter of John Keller and Zilla Van Meter, born in Crawford County, Indiana. This county is along the southern border of Indiana between Evansville, Indiana, and Louisville, Kentucky. A good portion of the information I'm about to share comes from a book, Portrait and Biographical Record of Macoupin County, Illinois, published in 1891, as well as from the Loper Keller Van Meter book I mentioned earlier. At the age of 11, Susan's family left Indiana, first settling along the Kickapoo River in Coles County, making the family early settlers of the area, 
other early settler of the area was Thomas Lincoln, father of Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. The family didn't stay long, though, leaving seven years later in 1836 to settle in Macoupin County. And that's the same year that Susan got married to Adrian Loper. Hmm. In the book profiling Macoupin County residents that I just mentioned, Susan's father was described as being of German stock. This is partly true. John Keller's great-grandfather, Harry's third great-grandfather, was Johannes Keller, and he was born in Switzerland. Hmm. He came to colonial America in 1736 on the Princess Augustus that sailed from Rotterdam to Pennsylvania. Eventually, he would move the family to Maryland, where Susan's father, John, was born in 1787 and grew up. Then at the end of the Revolutionary War, a war that John's father, George, fought in as a patriot, the family left Maryland and settled in Grayson County, Kentucky for a time. Now, Susan's mother, Harry's great-grandmother, Zilla Van Meter, one who was accused of insanity, um, was born in Grayson County, Kentucky in 1793. She and John Keller would marry there in December 1808. Not long before Susan's birth in 1818, John and Zilla loaded up their family for Indiana. John's parents, John's parents would follow and ultimately settle in Coles County, Illinois, whereas John and his family continued on to Macoupin. But what about Zilla's family, the Van Meters? Well, they also followed Zilla and John to Indiana, but that is where her father and stepmother remained. <laughs> oh my gosh. So did they stay in Crawford County then? Uh, I, until their deaths, yes. I believe her parents were there until they died. So quick little factoid about Crawford County. That is the home mm-hmm. of Leavenworth. And you're like, Leavenworth, not that Leavenworth. Different Leavenworth. Yeah, I know it's not that with Leavenworth. But they have a really good restaurant called The Overlook that's right on the uh, bluffs right above the Ohio River. Oh, and cool. they have the best freaking fried chicken. So oh, sounds good. Just a little bit of a some props there to the amazing fried chicken one can find in Indiana. It sounds great. So who are the Van Meters? Well, the Van Meter family had Dutch origins, with the first in the colonies being Jan Justa Van Meteren and his wife, Masekin Hendrickson, Harry's sixth great-grandparents, who married in 1646. Sixteen years later, the family would board the ship De Vos, or the Fox, and left Amsterdam on August 31st, 1662. Hmm. The trip would take close to three full months to arrive in New Amsterdam, which they did on November 14th, 1662. On June 7th, 1663, less than seven months later, their village of Wiltwick, New Amsterdam, now known as Kingston, New York, in Ulster County, was attacked and burned by the Manisic Indians. Now, this is, again, there's a lot of stuff going on with the Indians at this time because the white people are coming over, the colonizers, and taking over their land and not necessarily being really kind about it. And they would lash out and... And so they, this was during one of those time periods, and they came over, and then they captured 34 people, including Jan's wife, Masekin, and two of their children, one of whom was 11-year-old Euston Jan, Harry's fifth great-grandfather, as well as Catherine Dubois and her baby Sarah, future wife of Euston. Hmm. Um, three months later, they were rescued and returned home. Now, the Van Meter family did well for themselves. Jan bought a plantation with a son-in-law, that was totaled 5,000 acres in 1695 in Somerset County, New Jersey. Eusta would marry Sarah Dubois, who happened to be a descendant of royalty, and they married in 1682. She was 20 and he was 30. Hmm. Sarah was the granddaughter of Cretian Dubois and daughter of Louis Dubois and Catherine Blanchon, and because of her pedigree, she never took her husband's name. 
She was always known as Sarah Dubois. Interesting. And where was where were they living at this point? New Jersey. Okay. Now, Eusta and Sarah's son, Jan, or John, first married Sarah Bodine in 1705. They had three kids. She died in 1709. Mm. His next wife was a first cousin, Margaret Malinar, parents to Harry's great third great-grandfather, Jacob. John, Margaret, and family left Salem County, New Jersey soon after they married in 1710 or 1711. You see, John had a bright idea. He wanted to go to Virginia and bring all his friends and family with him to obtain 40,000 acres of unsurveyed land in the northern section. He, with his brother Isaac and 20 other families, settled in an area now part of Frederick County, Virginia. It was in 1767 that Jacob, John's son, Harry's third great-grandfather, and his brother Henry would leave Virginia with their families. They removed first to Pennsylvania, setting up Baptist churches and building several forts. Then in 1779, he, along with friends and family totaling around 60, left Pennsylvania. They would tie 27 flatboats together at Fort Pitt and float down the Ohio River to Kentucky, where they settled near Elizabethtown. Wow. Yeah. And he would help build a grist mill and establish the Severns Valley Baptist Church, the first Baptist church in Kentucky. Wow. Here's a little thing that you start to learn. He, since Harry T. Hayward has really deep roots, that means his family's been here longer. Mm-hmm. That means he has a ton of, des- they have a ton of descendants in the country. Mm-hmm. And that increases your likelihood of having famous descendants. Mm-hmm. Now, especially when you look at the original colonists, the original immigrants, those were immigrants that had more money mm-hmm. and more of an ability to continue and prosper. Mm-hmm. It's a certain type of privilege of its own. Now, my, my ancestors did come over early. I have one, a couple lines, but apparently on my side of the family, the women just kept like, like to marry poorer and poorer men. I don't know. (laughs) They weren't really good at, they married for love and happiness. But anyhow, so Harry has actually many famous distant cousins and a couple of them are alive right now. And I wonder what they would think if they knew that Harry T. Hayward is probably their cousin, even though really distant cousin. So here are some from the Mayflower families that he's cousins with. George Bush, FDR, the Baldwin brothers, like Alec and William, <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, Dick Van Dyke, Sarah Palin, <laughs> um, actor Scott Foley, convicted murderer Bathsheba Spooner, who was executed in 1778. Oh, my. Yes. Joseph Smith, Mormon founder. Oh, my. Um, John Hinckley Jr., hmm. John Lithgow. William H. Macy, Glenn Close, and our favorite senator, Tammy Duckworth. Oh, I love Tammy Duckworth. Yes. Now, from the Van Meter and Loper and Keller families and Mellon families, actually, we have General George S. Patton and Johnny Carson. On the Hayward line, Henry David Thoreau, William Howard Taft, Julia Child, Jack and Joe Buck, Burl Ives, Vincent Price, Will Wheaton, uh-huh, that's awesome. And the current crown princess of Greece, Marie Chantal Miller. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, some fun random notes from the tree. I don't know about fun, but we'll see. So Experience Mitchell, Harry's fourth great-grandfather on his paternal line, was an early arrival at Plymouth, though not a Mayflower passenger. However, his first wife was Jane Cook, daughter of Mayflower passenger Francis Cook. Hmm. Jane died early on in their marriage. Experience would wed Mary in 1641, and it was with Mary that Harry descended through their daughter, Hannah, who married Deacon John Joseph Hayward. Oh, my gosh. Now, back to Susan Keller Loper, the grandmother of Harry. 
and her brother, John Hedges Keller, who we discussed about his insanity plea. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually married to um, her husband, Adrian Loper's sister, Adeliza. Ah. And thereby making Susan and John's children double first cousins, mean that they would share as much DNA with each other as half-siblings. Oh my gosh. Wow. And last but not least, James Jacob Loper, sixth great-grandfather to Harry, was called the granddaddy of whalers. He even applied for a patent for making whale oil in 1688. Wow. And that is the family tree of Harry, we don't know what T stands for, Hayward. (laughs) Well done, my friend. Oh, my goodness. And there's stuff that's cut out because... Oh, my word, there is so much. Wow. Which it makes you wonder, how did Harry go so wrong? You know, because it yeah. seems like he had a pretty normal family. You know, there's no, like, allegations of abuse as a child. There's mm. no, you know, it's like, what what happened with him? You know? It, it, it is a question. I mean... <laughs> The only thing that might might be a role in it, like his younger brother died when he was young, maybe something like that just tripped him up. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he had something to do with his brother dying. We don't know. Yeah, I know. Right. It's so crazy, though, because it's like I don't believe anybody's like, quote unquote, born bad. No. But you kind of look at stuff like this and you just wonder, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. what what was going on with him that that he behaved the way he did. And did the things that he did. You would think there was something. Mm-hmm. But what it was, ah, That's I had crazy. no wow. idea. Well, you took me on a rollicking ride today, Denise. Yes. And since this was so long, I'm not going to ask for what you're reading or anything. But we'll we'll do that next time. Okay. And next episode is our Halloween episode. Ooh. <laughs> the Amityville Horror. The Ooh. true story. Of Ronald DeFeo Jr. That's going to be super fun. That will. And his tree is something else, too. Should so, we, like, dress up and, like, wear costumes and stuff? For this if you one? want to. And then we can, you know, video this and put it up on, like, YouTube or something. so fun. A live version. I think we'll have to think about that. Yes. So I'll have to come up with a costume in a week then. <laughs> That's okay. I, I will find, I will probably be a princess. That works. Because I can. <laughs> <laughs> And you deserve to be. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Denise. This was lovely. You're welcome. It's always fun discovering when murder and family meet, right? Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, everyone. And we will see you for our next spooky episode. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed. 